right. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Good? Awesome. Awesome. I'm so thankful to hear that. I'm, I'm, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm one of the elders here, as, as most of you guys know, of Redeemer Church. And uh, as always, I am so thankful that we can just gather here together and just dive into God's Word, because that's what this morning is all about. Now, if you have known me for any significant amount of time, you may know that I have kind of somewhat strong feelings about social media. Uh, I believe that in many ways it can actually be a, a helpful tool. It can be a, a wonderful tool for, pe for people to be able to connect with their friends and family or, or especially to be able to kind of know what's going on with certain organizations like, like our church. So I think it can be a good thing. It can be a good thing that God blesses. But at the same time, social media, how it is most popularly used, has also been a destructive force. And it's been a destructive force, especially for our younger generation of, of adolescents and teens, causing depression rates to skyrocket in our youth at exorbitant rates. And, and not only that, but I believe that it can often nourish our sinful neuroticism that is rampant in our culture. The sinful desire to have the world's spotlight shine upon you as people bask in the glory of your, of your charm and your, and your wit and your intelligence, maybe, maybe even your body, and sadly, even your so-called holiness. But, you know, other than that, I don't really have much of an opinion on it. But, but I mentioned my thoughts on social media because of our passage today. Because Mark 10, 32 through 45 actually brings to the fore two theological categories. The first of which is called Theologia Crucia. It's a fancy name, right? Theologia Crucia, which simply means the theology of the cross. And the second is Theologia Gloria. Theologia Gloria, which is theology of glory. Now, properly defined, both of these categories of theology are, are good, and they're true, and they should be sought after. But mankind, in their sinfulness, more often than not, pervert one and completely drop the other. And sadly, this is not relegated to only the unbelieving world. There are many who claim to be believers who want to ignore the theology of the cross and focus their attention on the theology of glory. But not a biblical theology of glory, which at its center has Christ. But they want to focus on a theology of glory that at its core and at its center has man. And so it is a twisted and warped theology of glory. And this is the problem that the two disciples in our passage today, the sons of Zebedee, find themselves. Their fixation on this distorted theology of glory caused them to completely miss the theology of the cross that is at the center, that it's at the, at the very root, the foundation of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And this is what we want to spend our time exploring today in our passage. But first, let's pray. Father, 
Lord, as I asked last week, Lord, I pray that you allow this, this passage to come alive. Lord, I pray that your spirit, God, opens the eyes of our hearts. Opens the eyes of, of our minds so that we can, we can remove any preconceived notions about this text or, or about the Bible in general. So that we can learn the things that you would have us learn this morning. Father, I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, you may have noticed that at this point I have not yet defined my terms here. I have not provided proper definitions yet of the theologies of the cross and glory. And the reason why I haven't done that yet is because I really want our text, to, uh, our text today to be the, be the thing that provides those definitions for us. And so we will begin with Jesus laying out for the third time in this gospel the gruesome details of the theology of the cross. And so Mark reminds us in verse 32 that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus knows what's coming, right? He, he knows what's coming. He knows what is waiting for him at the end of this journey in, uh, to Jerusalem. And yet, as the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus 700 years before, his face was set like flint. His face was set like flint, which means, which means unwavering. He was unwavering as he drew nearer and nearer to the cross. Now, verse 32 also says that those who were following Jesus were amazed and afraid. They were amazed and afraid. This might, this might seem kind of strange, but I think they were most likely amazed and afraid of what Jesus has been saying lays ahead of him at Jerusalem. Because remember, Jesus has already told his disciples twice already what will happen to him there. And so they were amazed that Jesus kept marching on, that he kept moving forward. I mean, I feel like if I, if I knew that violence was, was waiting for me whenever I enter into this town and that my death was coming, I would be dragging my feet. I would be making every single pit stop and bathroom break on the way. But he was marching on. His face was set as flint. And I believe they were afraid. Because they still did not understand fully what Jesus meant by all the talk of his death and resurrection. They didn't want to believe. They almost couldn't believe that the Messiah, whom they've been waiting on, could possibly die. And so I believe that their, their confusion about all of this is what really caused their fear to grow in their hearts. Now, it's also important to know that it's not just the 12 who are following Jesus at this time. Because at this point, he actually had many disciples who were following him to, to hear and to, to learn from his teachings. But the 12 were those men Jesus decided to invest in in a special way. And at the end of verse 32 and going on into verse uh, verses 33 through 34, Jesus took the twelve away separately. He took them away from the, from the rest of the disciples who were following him, and he predicted for the third time his death and resurrection. Saying, and taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, in this prediction of his death and resurrection, Jesus actually adds a few more key details that he had previously held back from his disciples in the two other tellings of his death and resurrection. And borrowing from one commentator, perhaps the most important detail in this text is Jesus' announcement that he would be delivered by the Jewish leaders into the hands of the Gentiles. This is new information. And this is really important information. And so first, he would be betrayed into the hands of his enemies among the Jewish hierarchy, the chief priests and the scribes. And then they, in turn, would deliver him to the Gentiles. And the reason for this is because the Jewish leaders did not have the authority in themselves under the Roman occupation to uh, set a death sentence for someone. And so they would hand him over to Pontius Pilate to be put to death. And now, this is an important detail, and I'll explain why. You see, on the Day of Atonement in ancient Israel, an animal was killed, and its blood was spread on the mercy seat in the place, of the temple called, or a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, and then the sins of the people of Israel were symbolically transferred to what was called the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat was then driven out into the wilderness, outside of the camp of Israel into the outer darkness, cut off from the people of God and the presence of the goodness of God. Now this is an important thing because this is how they saw a Jew who was being delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. To be placed into the hands of the Gentiles was to be said outside of the covenant community, outside the camp, outside the place where the presence of God, the presence of the goodness of God was concentrated and focused. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is saying will soon happen to him. Like the scapegoat, the sins of his people will be placed on his shoulders. And he will be sent outside of the city of Jerusalem into the outer darkness where he, like the sacrificial lamb on the day of atonement, will suffer and be slaughtered as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, in short, this is Jesus' theology of the cross. This is the theology of the cross. Jesus did not come to earth for present earthly glory. He came, as Isaiah 53 prophesied, to be a suffering servant by whose stripes we can be healed. He came to have his hands and feet pierced for our offenses to God and who was crushed for our evil and wicked wrongdoing. That is the theology of the cross. It is our salvation comes only through his suffering and death. And that is the theology the disciples at this point did not want to hear. Now immediately after this talk with the disciples, we see Jesus' theology of the cross come into stark contrast with a man-centered theology of glory. 
follow along with me in verses 35 through 37. Classes are driving me crazy, so I'm taking them off. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you. And if that isn't a huge red flag, I don't know what is. It's kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're like having a, a conversation with your, like your boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse, or something like that, or even your, even your friend, and you say, Okay, I want to tell you something, but you've got to promise you can't get mad. It's kind of like, like that kind of thing. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Now John Calvin actually, I think, said it perfectly here. He says that this narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity. And that is the essence of the distorted theology of glory. Even though Jesus just got done laying out the theology of the cross, they were still, these, these two disciples were still under the assumption that the kingdom of God would come in the same way that an earthly kingdom would, would kind of burst onto the scene in history. With, with regality, with, with grandeur, with this large army that will overcome their enemies, namely Rome at this time. And that Jesus would soon sit on an earthly throne with his enemies at his, as his footstool. Now, that was the coming of the kingdom in the minds of the disciples. That's what it would look like. And in their mind's vision of the kingdom of heaven, there was no room for the suffering that comes with the theology of the cross. No room. Only glory. Only resplendence. And boy, did they want some of it. And so James and John essentially have this conversation between themselves. And they might have said something like, hey, hey, listen. Jesus is talking about this, this confusing stuff about, about Jerusalem and, and getting flogged and beaten and, and maybe possibly killed, which sounds terrifying, by the way. And we don't know what all that is about. But, but you know, hey, we, we know that he's the Messiah, right? We know that he's the Messiah. We know that his kingdom is at hand. And so, and so let's, let's go ask him. Let's go ask him for these positions of glory. And not just any positions of glory, the highest positions of glory that we could possibly have. Let's, let's go do it. Let's go do it. Do you see this warped theology of glory taking over the hearts and minds of James and John? Do you see it? The hearts of the sons of Zebedee have been utterly derailed from the good and holy zeal that they displayed when they left everything that they had ever known, everything that they had ever had to follow after the one who called. And what took its place was a wicked ambition for self-glorification. We even learn in Matthew 19, 28, that Jesus actually reveals to the 12 apostles, 11 of the original plus Matthias, who would replace Judas in Acts 1, 26, but those 12 apostles would actually sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom of God with Jesus. So, so they knew, they knew that they were going to have these places of honor in the kingdom. And yet for these two men, it wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted the two most honored thrones. They wanted their glory to shine brighter than the rest of the disciples. 
Now, what makes this story even more ridiculous is that we see in Matthew 20, 20 through 21, that James and John actually had their mother do their dirty work. It was she who approached Jesus and made this request that was on the hearts of her sons. And the omission of their mother in Mark's account indicates that it was, it was they who were behind this question. They, they put their mom up to it. It wasn't just this, this overzealousness mother, but it was them who went and asked their, their, their mommy if they can go and talk to Jesus for them. Can you believe that? Now, I don't know if this is, is actually biblically accurate, but I, I kind of imagine them just kind of, kind of standing behind her, kind of crouching and just kind of peering over, their, over her shoulder as, as their mommy asked Jesus for the highest places of honor for her sons. And to be honest, you know, I was having this conversation with Kayla, and she was like, I, I would ask Jesus the same thing for my son. So, you know, it's also, it, she was probably complicit. That's all I'm saying. But all of this reveals that they have a superficial understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple. Not only that, but it also shows that they have an inflated opinion of their own importance. And it reveals, as, I've, I have, as I have already stated, that they are following Christ not to bring him glory, but to grab some glory for themselves. And friends, as I have said in past sermons, the Bible is often meant to be a mirror to show us the dirt on our own faces. We so often do not understand ourselves what being a disciple of Christ actually entails. We'll get to that soon. And so often we have this, this overinflated opinion of ourselves and we seek out our own glory. And do you see now why I brought up social media? That is where I believe this, this, this sinfulness manifests itself the most in our culture. We, even as believers, can often be, be so hungry for our own glory, to be seen, to be, to be known by others, to climb social ladders so that, that our voice, not, not the Word of God, but our voice can maybe, may, just, just maybe, be a little louder than the rest, and we can gain high places of honor among our peers. And like the disciples, our hearts can be derailed from good zeal and passion for Christ. And the twisted theology of glory can take root in our hearts, and we begin to follow Jesus, not to bring Him glory, but to gain the glory for ourselves. As an example of this, we often even turn our quiet times, the times that, that we are, are meant to, to steal away and dedicate to prayer and reading of the Word into a photo op to show off on Instagram. You, know, you, you kind of have to make the coffee cup just right, make sure the Bible is laid out nicely. Make sure it's a, it's a popular passage and that you highlight the most popular verse. Rather that, or you kind of like, you know, plop the Bible on your stomach and make sure that your feet are kind of like sticking out just a little bit so that the Bible is mostly in focus and your feet are kind of fuzzy and then you have a nice fireplace afterwards just so you, that you can get the, the most beautiful picture of your quiet time, your alone time with Jesus. Our desire for glory can turn our faith into a prop 
And so even these moments, these moments that we're supposed to spend alone with Christ, can turn into moments not to, not to grow in your walk with Christ, not moments that you can give praise and glory to God, but moments of self-glorification and to shine a light onto our own piety. I'm not saying that this is always the motivation for people who post, post uh, pictures like this, but for many believers, because, because I feel that temptation myself. And so I think for many believers, I believe it is more often than not the motivation of self-glory. And so the question becomes for us, what is our aim in following Christ? Is it, is it to truly serve Him? Or is it to satisfy our ambition for self-glorification? Now friends, I want to, I want to kind of shine that spotlight onto myself for one moment, not the spotlight of self-glorification, but the sp spotlight of that question, onto myself and to the elders of this church and anybody who, who leads a particular ministry. Because I think that that question needs to be asked the most to Christian leaders. Many, many pastors have fallen because they began to have a man-centered theology of glory. Pastors who believe that their pastoral ministry is a pedestal to lift themselves higher. And this is no more apparent than in our celebrity pastor culture. Pastors whose first concern when preparing a sermon is to have enough pithy quotes for his social media team to retweet. Or pastors who have, <clears throat> excuse me, who have been so corrupted by the man-centered theology of glory that they see themselves as elevated, as, as literally floating above the rest of the lay people in their congregation, in their staff, and they abuse their God-ordained station and act as tyrants within the church instead of servants and shepherds. So we should all, Every single one of us who claims to be a follower of Christ, pray to God that he opens our eyes to our sinful ambitions and keeps our eyes fixated on the proper object of our worship and glory, which, my friends, is not ourselves. Now, the last thing I will say about this before we move on to Jesus' response is that, friends, any glory that we receive that is not granted to us by our unity with Christ is cheap glory. It is cheap glory. The glory you receive from man is, is fool's gold. It might seem valuable at the outset, but the more you invest in it, the poorer in spirit you truly become. Now, let us take a look at the response of Jesus in verse 38. It says, you do not know what you are asking. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. And what a wonderful, wonderful response is that. Jesus knew that they had no idea of the implications of what they were asking. None whatsoever. And so he asked them, a question to begin to, to bring out these, these faulty ideas in their minds. And in this question, he employed two metaphors, that of a cup and that of baptism. So first, Jesus asked, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? 
Now, drinking someone's cup was a, was a figure of speech that meant to share in that person's fate, to experience their destiny alongside with them. And a cup was often, often used in the Old Testament for the wrath of God's judgment. And so Jesus was clearly referencing the same cup that he would mention in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, in agony, he, he asked the Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus is asking these, these clueless disciples here, are you willing to share and partake in my suffering? And second, he asks, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Now, he was not talking about the baptism of John that he underwent at the Jordan River in Mark 1. What he was talking about here is being flooded, being overwhelmed but in the fury of God's wrath, inundated by the Father's judgment and being lowered into the grave. This is the baptism Jesus is referencing here and in Luke 12, 50, where he says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how it consumes me until it is finished. And so James and John, are you willing, are you willing to drink this cup? And are you willing to be baptized with this baptism? And in verse 39, their response was, Yep, we are able. And this quick response makes it clear that they still did not understand what Jesus was actually saying. Because here is the message that they missed. And brothers and sisters, listen closely, because if you desire to be a true follower of Christ, if you want to truly follow Him, this is a truth that you must understand, and this is a truth that you must believe and hold on to with everything that you have. What Jesus is saying here is that there is no true theology of glory without the theology of the cross. Let me say that again. There is no true theology of glory without the theology of the cross. You see, the cross is where Jesus associated himself with us, sinners, to the utmost. Not only did he empty himself of glory and the throne in heaven, as Philippians 2, 7 says, but he became truly man and truly God, associating with our humanity. But then, on that cross, he took on the sins of every single believer, every single person who would ever put their faith in him, associating himself not with just our humanity, but with our wickedness, with our rebellion against God. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did not receive his ultimate glory during his earthly ministry. He received scorn. He received pain. And he received the cross. And so a believer... And those who, who want to know what being a follower of Jesus actually means. Not what the world says that following Jesus means, but what following Jesus actually means. It is not an invitation to glory in this life. That is not what following Jesus means. Instead, in the words of Jesus himself, it is an invitation to come and die. 
It is an invitation to now associate yourself with Christ and imitate him by picking up your cross, a symbol for suffering and dying for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, because, as Romans 8.18 tells us, just as we share in the suffering of Christ in this life, guess what? We will share in His glory, not our glory, but His glory in the life that is to come. That is the true theology of glory. That's the theology of glory. But it only comes through living the theology of the cross. As one theologian puts it, the pathway to glory is always the pathway of suffering. Before the crown, there is a cup. Before the blessings flow, there is a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. Jesus then responds to the disciples again by saying in verses 39 and 40, The cup I drink, you will drink. With the baptism which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. So here Jesus is actually giving a hint that these disciples would actually go through a great deal of suffering that, on the surface at least, would be like his own. wouldn't be the same, but it would be like his own. James would be the first apostle to be martyred. And John would be greatly persecuted and then exiled to the island of Patmos. And as Sproul said in his commentary on Mark, Yet they would not have to endure the agony of the Father turning His face away. No one of us has ever been asked by God to drink the cup that Jesus drank or to be baptized with the baptism Jesus experienced. Nonetheless, we are called to identify with that cup and with that baptism. Now, I'm somewhat repeating myself here, but I think, I think this is an important enough point to, to repeat, not just, not just one time, but many times. But I am repeating myself here when I say, with our water baptism, the first act of obedience we are called to do upon becoming a Christian, which is the sign of the new covenant, signifies that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That's what baptism is. That's what baptism means. And we must be willing to identify with Jesus in his disgrace. We must be willing to identify with Jesus in his humiliation, or we will never participate in his exaltation and glory. But again, he promises us that all who identify with him in his suffering will indeed participate with him in his glory. That is the Christian hope that is found nowhere else. Then Jesus added in verse 40, But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared. This probably really bummed them out. So Jesus told essentially James and John that he could not grant their request because the decision was not up to him. It was the Father's choice to make and indeed had actually already been made. The position had already been prepared for someone else. Now, for who it has been prepared for, I'm just going to have to wait and see, I guess. Now, verse 41, 
we will see that the other ten disciples had overheard what transpired between James and John and their mommy, and they were not too happy about it. They were not happy. In fact, the text says that they were indignant. This is a, a really strong word for angry. Now, we can surmise from Jesus' response to their anger that they were not angry because these disciples were acting in an ungodly way. That they, were, that they were, you know, not mad, just disappointed, you know, because they're not acting like, you know, true Christ followers should act. That's not why they're angry here. But most likely they were angry because they themselves desired that position. And they were more than likely angry that they didn't think of it first. They should have gone back and got their own moms. Every one of them preferring themselves over the others. That's why they were angry. Jesus then steps in and delivers a lesson that, that we all need to hear, especially those in leadership. In verse 42, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus is saying that the unbelieving world is driven by selfish ambition and lust for higher position and titles and when they achieve it, they lord it over them. They lord it over those that serve them. They misuse and abuse their power and position. However, in, one, in uh, the words of one commentator, Jesus left no doubt that this kind of leadership style is to be unknown, unknown in the church. He says in verse 43, it shall not be so among you. He said, in essence, that may be the way of the world. That might be how the Gentile world acts around you. That may even be how the Jewish world acts around you. But I will not put up with that in my house. So, what is the manner of leadership that should permeate the church? Well, he lays it out for them in the rest of verse 43 and 44. He says, But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Now, I believe if we were all honest with ourselves, none of us would really pick this verse for our, you know, our, our life verse. You know, that, that verse that we, we want to like get tattooed on our arm or something like that, and that's what, you know, it's what we're going to live by. I don't think we would probably pick this. But Paul, future tattoo suggestion. I think that we, honestly, if we again admit it to ourselves, I think that we like the secular way of doing things. We much rather be served than serve. But you see, Jesus opposes the mindset of the world. And as Romans 12, 2 says, so should we. You want to do something great for God? Do you want to please Him and honor Him with your life? Well, then Jesus says you are to become a servant and a slave to all. You are to replace your sinful ambition for your own glory and your love of self with a love for your brother and sister. With an ambition to serve them and place their needs above that of your own. And to do that is to have the mind of Christ, placing others before yourself, not giving attention to your own interests or desires before that of others. 
And so here Jesus is reversing all ideas of greatness this world spews forth. Jesus said that if we want to be great, then we must be small. If we want to be exalted, we must be abased, humiliated. If we want to rule, then we must serve. That is the ethic of Jesus. And again, this is especially true of leaders. Remember that Jesus is addressing the twelve, eleven of which would go on to be the foundation of the early church. Jesus then, in verse 45, anchors the reason why we are to be great in the kingdom, or why if we are to be great in the kingdom, we must be servants and slaves to our brothers and sisters. And he, he, he takes that and he anchors it in himself. And he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here Jesus sums up his entire earthly ministry and gives the overarching why behind why he came. And in the simplest possible terms, he came to serve by giving his life on a cruel cross as a ransom for many. Now, the term ransom means the price paid to redeem a slave or prisoner. And friends, we, we all desperately need a ransom because we all had gladly and willingly sold ourselves into the bondage of slavery to sin. But who exactly is this ransom paid to? Again, Sproul wisely points out that in the early church, one of the terrible distortions of the work of Christ was called the ransom theory of atonement. The ransom theory of atonement. Which stated that when Jesus was crucified, he made a payment to the devil. Just as we might make a ransom payment to a kidnapper. The idea was that the devil is the prince of this world and that he held humanity in captivity. And so Jesus paid the ransom to the devil to set us free of that captivity. However, the Bible never says anything like this. Not once. Jesus did not pay a ransom to Satan. No, he crushed Satan's head. So who was the ransom paid to? The answer to that is that the, or the ransom was paid to the Father. Paid to God the Father. Because we all broke God's eternal and perfect law, Christ gave himself to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And so he purchased with his blood our freedom from the wrath of God. Not from Satan, from the wrath of God. And this is why Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. And so we who were hopelessly in debt to God, through faith in Jesus' work on the cross, were not required to pay our debt. The debt has been paid for us by the suffering servant of Israel. And since Jesus is anchoring Verses 43 and 44, in his atoning sacrifice, friends, that is to be our ultimate example of servitude to one another. Christ uses his death as the prime example of how deep our servitude should go. Seeking our own glory? Seeking to be propped up? No. 
servitude, slavery for one another, becoming lesser. The theology of the cross should dominate even how we lead and serve one another. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the ransom that your son paid on our behalf. Lord, sometimes I think we can, we can just miss the fact that the God of the universe, that the holy and perfect Son, through whom and for whom all things were created, emptied himself, stepped down into history so that he could suffer and die. And not, not receive glory from the very people that he created. But so that he can be hung on a cross. To save wicked and filthy sinners like us. And so Father, I pray, Lord. That you emblazon on our hearts. Not an ambition for ourselves. Not an ambition to glorify our own name but to imitate you, to follow after you, to learn from your example in the ways that we conduct ourselves online, the way that we conduct ourselves with one another here at church. And I pray, Lord, that you, you put within us an, an ambition to outserve one another. And Father, I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.